Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Shivani, and I'll be chairing this session. Um, a very warm welcome to our speaker, Diego Iteraldo. Uh, Diego is the Chief Director of Demography at Statistics South Africa. Um, he has an MA in Sociology from Pretoria University um, and a second one um, in Regional and Urban Planning from Stellenbosch University. Uh, he also has postgrad qualifications in demography and population studies, as, as you would expect given his position. Um, he is on the global advisory board for the IOM, um, which is the International Organization um, for Migration, um, and part of the UN expert group on migration statistics. Um, so his role at uh, StatsSA relates to responsibility for the analysis of demographic data um, and for media population, for the production of the media population estimates, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Um, so yeah, we're very fortunate to have Diego with us today um, and look forward to his, his talk. Welcome, Diego. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'd first like to thank the Actual Association of Southern Africa for the invitation to speak here today. Um, there's a little bit of a story behind my invitation to come here today. In June, I spoke to a group of information officers at the Maslow Hotel in Johannesburg, and one, Mr. Prashant Rajamal, I don't know if you're here today, um, he requested the Actual Association to invite me to come speak because he, he, he felt that a lot of what I'm going to speak about is of relevance to your profession. Uh, and so it's on that basis that um, I'm here today. So um, I'm basically going to speak about three things today, um, almost like three presentations in one. Firstly, I, I want to explore or look at the interaction between the study or the field of demography and the business sector, which most of you are in. Uh, I then want to elaborate a little bit on the demographic dividend, what that is. It's a, it's a term that's been thrown around a lot. Um, many people uh, speak about that. Uh, so I, I just want to expand on that a little bit. And then I want to share with you some current demographic trends that form part of the 2018 mid-year population estimates. So let's, let's start off in, in that order. So obviously ever, ever since 1798 when Thomas Malthus uh, had his ap apocalyptic vision of overcrowding and starvation due to overpopulation, debate has raged about population growth and development. The terms population explosion, uh, excess population, population surplus have always been uh, issues or points of discussion which, which are prevalent uh, around even, even today. In the 60s and the 70s, uh, Neo-Malthusian view that uh, high fertility hindered development, but in the 1980s, economists refuted this view, uh, indicating that human capital and technology were the drivers of growth. Uh, is, issues such as diversity of the population, aging, changing dependency ratios, all contribute, contributed to this debate. Uh, the question at hand here is whether the world is moving towards a state of convergence where all countries are reaching a, a common point in terms of uh, lower fertility, change age structures, aging, or reduced dependency, or whether there are going to be regions of the world that are more diverse than the others. 
Uh, as an example, in Africa, only 22% of countries of, of people live in countries with a total fertility rate of less than four. So a total fertility rate is a demographic term that we use to indicate the average number of children that a woman will have in her reproductive ages, that's age 15 to 49, if current fertility trends or if her current fertility trends prevail to the end of her reproductive lifespan. So 22% of African people live in countries with, less, with a TFR of less than four. This means it's projected that Africa's population will increase from one to 2.7 billion by the year 2050, which, which equates to a 10 to 25% increase, or a, a representation of, of 10 to 25% of the global population. From having only three cities of over five million persons in them, this category will now have 35 cities. As far as um, children are concerned, these will increase from 411 million to 839 million, and young adults, those are from age 15 to 24, from 200 to 450 million. So it's estimated that 25% of men and 10% of women will manage to get jobs in the formal sector as we, as, as we know it by the age of 30. So the focus needs to be on sexual and reproductive health and rights, and access to modern contraceptives in countries where this is lacking. The rise and fall and the size of the labor market has an impact on GDP growth as well as on productivity growth. Um, the countries that are maximizing the demographic dividend, which I will speak about later, uh, have challenges in absorbing women in into the labor market and the rise in the elderly population is something that necessitates planning in terms of welfare, health care and labor market participation as well. More and more people are graduating or uh, surviving to the age of 65 and 70 and over. Um, many of them are having to live on pensions or on savings that they have, have made, uh, which often isn't enough. And, um, and, and they require to continue to, to be part of the labor market. Immigration and proper management of migration needs attention as well, but the impact of remittances cannot be discounted. Uh, in December in Marrakesh in Morocco, the world will meet to sign the Global Compact on Migration and the Global Compact on Refugees. These are two compacts, two non-binding agreements which will provide the world with a benchmark on how migration and refugees should be managed. Uh, it, for, for, the, for the first time, the world has come together to come up with a means of how to handle this phenomenon in a coordinated manner instead of on a piecemeal uh, basis as crises um, occur. Uh, and one of the things that the global compacts are looking at, as I've mentioned here, is on remittances. Uh, if we have a look at remittances at a global level, remittances uh, represent three times the amount of global overseas development investment. So I, ju I just want you to, to take a moment to sit back and, and consider that statement. Three times the, the total global overseas development investment is uh, made up of remittance um, uh, money being sent from, from one country to the other. Admittedly, it's, it's mostly by countries with high numbers of migrants living in other countries like India, Nigeria and the like. Um, but, but even in South Africa, it has a very significant contribution. 
So whilst many countries in Central Europe and Far East Asia show that declines in their population by 2050, most of the global population growth between now and 2050 will be coming from Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, just to indicate uh, a graphic here of migrants making significant contributions to both their host and home countries, we see here that migrants spend 85% of their earnings in their host communities and send 15% uh, back to the country of origin, uh, and they sent home approximately $600 billion in remittances in 2017, as I said, three times all official development assistance. Declining mortality is also responsible for increasing life expectancy and the population growth over the past 100 years. This was due to improved immunization as well as general improvement in health. In this regard, it is developed countries that show evidence of higher life expectancy. Uh, by the same token, fertility has resulted in reduced infant mortality and in, in, in leading many developed countries to below replacement for fertility. These two processes have resulted in an aging population and the largest increase in median age will result in emerging market, uh, market countries between now and 2050. Um, if you, if you, what we call in the this, in this study of demography the demographic transition theory, it means that we, we initially started with both high levels of mortality and, and fertility as medical um, innovation came through mortality rates declined, but fertility was left high, and that led to a sudden population increase, particularly at the time of the Industrial Revolution, and since then, through contraception or through family planning uh, initiatives, um, fertility rates have, have been made to decline, mostly in the, in the developing world, and South Africa and Southern Africa is, is part of that movement uh, where we have a declining fertility um, over time. There are parts of the world which have not reached that particular goal or, or which are still working on that. A country like Niger in West Africa still has a fertility rate of over seven children per woman. Um, whereas in, in Southern Africa, we find countries like South Africa sitting at 2.4 children per woman. So in the case of South Africa, its youth will decline from 28 to 21 percent. Um, that's 0 to 14 years of age. The working age persons will remain stable around 66 to 67 percent, so those of the ages 15 to 64, uh, but the elderly will increase from 6 percent to 13 percent. It may, it may seem insignificant, 13 percent of the population, not much, but it's, it's a, a doubling of the elderly population between now and 2050. So there's a strong relationship between long-term economic growth and working age populations, as we'll see with the demographic dividend. And then there's a secondary benefit to this in terms of productivity growth through the, what's, what's been termed as the second demographic dividend. Future population growth as well as future decline in dependency will emanate from sub-Saharan Africa, and these must be harnessed through correct investments and prioritization of resources. So then moving on to the dividend which, which I've spoken about, um, just as an introduction to this, dis despite a lot of sustained economic growth on the African continent, uh, two-thirds of the region still lives on less than $2 a day. Accelerated growth is required in order to make the necessary changes uh, in the region. 
the experience of the demographic dividend in Asia and Latin America uh, was characterized by a drop in fertility, which led to decreased youth dependency rates. So these countries reacted to this by investing in health, education, enacting economic policies that created jobs and which led to an accelerated growth known as the demographic dividend. So a demographic dividend is, is, not, is not unlike um, a dividend that you will get from your investment on the stock exchange. The only difference here is that the investments are social invest investments and not uh, monetary investments. And uh, if we have a look at this, at this, um, where are we? If we, if, if we have a look at, at this um, picture on the screen here, the population structure which, which um, speaks to the, the age structure, the relationship between the young, the working and the elderly uh, is a precondition to the, the, the existence of a demographic dividend. Then, as I will indicate to you in the next few slides, the conditions for the dividend to occur are to have investments in health, in education, in economics, and in good corporate governance. And only once all of that is working will we, will we be able to turn this wheel over here, uh, which, which will be the wheel of demographic dividends, which represents this accelerated growth that we see as a result of change in, in population structure, but as well as a result of social investments in these four uh, categories that we, that we have seen. So this model by Bloom et al. indicates that in order to benefit from the dividend, countries must experience demographic change, must improve your health, invest in education, and implement economic and governance policies. So let's go through those one by one. Um, the first requirement for the dividend to take place is for there to be a low fertility and mortality rates and create an age structure with reduced dependency. So when we talk about reduced dependency, we're talking about the elderly, we talk about the youth's dependency on a working age population. And of course, it's, it's assuming that everybody in the working age population is working, which is not always often the case. Um, but that results in, in lower levels of dependency, um, which, which uh, are the precondition. So this is achieved by promoting family planning and birth spacing, uh, child survival, which would lead to smaller families, and girls' education, which leads to the postponement of marriage and childbearing. If we have a look at this population pyramid um, from 2021 and 2060, this is based on the media population estimates. Uh, you can see how the change of the pyramid has, has, has changed or will change. This uh, gap that you see here between the ages of 10 and 24 um, can be attributed to, to HIV and to the outflowing of people in those age groups who are leaving the country, because um, we, we see the same thing on the female side. But if you have a, just have a look at the shape between the two, between 2021 and 2060, we're almost moving from a pyramidal shape to more of an anvil shape um, population pyramid. Uh, as, a, as an, as an ex exaggerated example, if you were to look at Niger and you look at Japan, you would see that Niger shows you almost a perfect symmetric, symmetrical uh, population pyramid, 
and the Japanese population pyramid is no longer a pyramid. It's more of an anvil shape with a broad base at the top and it's uh, a lot narrower at the bottom. So in terms of health and education, investment in health and education are key for developing skilled and a, labor, a healthy labor force. Promoting health allows children to perform better at school and to eventually contribute, to, contribute more productively to the workforce. Reproductive health services and health-seeking behavior to combat non-communicable diseases need to be prevented. So if we have a healthier population, we're going to have a much lower infant mortality and child mortality rates, which means children are going to at least survive into the, into the working ages. But most importantly, in the context of South Africa, by combating a disease like HIV, which, which basically rips people out of the, the age groups where they are most economically active, you would be contributing to a more productive and um, a, a economically positive workforce. Um, and of course, as then people graduate into, into, into elderly years, it's important that there is a group of people uh, or a generation of, of people who are moving into the working ages who are healthy and able to contribute to that. Education also enables people to become more skilled and to access high quality jobs which promote economic development. UNICEF really recently claimed that for each year of education, uh, it, it equates to a 10% increase in personal income. So if we have a look at this um, chart here, it's a, re a relationship between the education status of a mother and under five child mortality. We see that in all cases, um, and these come from the demographic and health surveys, which, which is a, a standard survey run across many developing countries. Uh, we have uh, cases here of Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, Malawi, Ethiopia, Ghana, and Namibia. We, we see that child mortality is at its lowest when the mother's level of education is that of secondary education or more. It's only in the case of Chad and uh, Namibia, the second one and the last one, where uh, mortality for no education is slightly better than mortality for primary education. Uh, so we can, we can have a look at surveys like this around the world and see exactly what the impact of education on health, health outcomes uh, will be. In terms of job creation, um, Africa's challenge is that due to its young population, it needs to create jobs at a similar rate to which the labor force is growing. And in order to do this, the working uh, age group of 15 to 64 needs to be larger than either the youth or the elderly. Um, and in order to absorb this population and taking into account the, the movement of, of people, which is generating a lot of uh, resonance in, in the news today with the European migration crisis and the crisis on the southern border of the United States and even here at home, we need to identify sectors of the economy that will drive economic growth. Um, I think it's, it's, really, it's really important that planners and policymakers look at which sectors are not achieving that growth and, the, and, and that we rather prioritize uh, sectors and industries which are showing that kind of growth. Um, we need to ensure that skilled workers are available to, kill, to fill key jobs in these sectors and to promote pro-growth economic policies as well as promoting tra traditionally male careers to women. And a balance must be reached between economic growth and an environment that enables job creation. 
then the, the most important, but probably the most underscored of those, of those wheels uh, is the one of governance. And it's really important that for all the, the previous investments to result in some kind of benefit, uh, sound governance principles must be adhered to so that the impact of inflation, political instability and corruption, to name a few, do not erode the gains that have been made. So we can have the three perfect wheels spinning at high speed, but if the, if the governance wheel is not, is not turning, then the, then the whole thing will be slowed down and that dividend will not be forthcoming. So a demographic dividend there must be earned through investments in education, health of the youth, infrastructure and roads, uh, power and water, political stability, fighting corruption, as well as labor market policy reforms. Beyond the dividend, I spoke earlier of the second demographic dividend. So this, this applies to a case where all the conditions of the first dividend have been met, which encourages people to accumulate more personal wealth. And as people live longer and accumulate more wealth, they're able to create a, a uh, cyclical pattern for their, for their um, offspring, for them to benefit from that first um, demographic dividend provided, of course, that the, the requirements of the first dividend are still there in, in place. Uh, research by Lee and Mason in 2006 showed that in such cases, people will invest more in each of their children and enable that more resources to be made available to them, which will result in the sustainability of the demographic dividend. Before I come to this last part, in terms of South Africa and the demographic dividend, when we talk about having the right age structure, we call that a window of opportunity. It's a, it's a time from, from where the, the dependency ratios are favorable, but this window does not stay open forever because eventually people in the youth are going to graduate into being elderly people. And the, the burden of dependency is, is simply going to shift from, from young ages to older ages. Uh, so. We, we have this window of opportunity. There probably are still a few years left of this window of opportunity in South Africa. But if you have a look at each one of those wheels and you ask yourself the question, are we in a position to, to make those wheels turn, then in almost all of those cases, the answer is no. Um, there may be parts of the country where the wheel is turning and where a dividend has certainly accrued. And this province and Gauteng are possibly at a provincial level two provinces that are able to do so, but most certainly for the, for the country as a whole, uh, it, it, it would appear that South Africa will not benefit from a demographic uh, dividend at all. So then this brings me to the last section of the presentation, and that's on some current demographic trends from the media population estimates of 2018. So the, the media estimates is one of the most authoritative sources of demographic data that is released every year. It's released by Statistics South Africa towards the middle of the year by, by July. Um, it subscribes to what's called the Special Data Dissemination Standard of the IMF, which means it's a dissemination standard. It's a, a standard on how, how this should be released and more specifically when. And so we are committed to releasing this within one month of the middle of the year. So within the month of July, we release this every year. So this is based on a method called the cohort component method, which takes a base population and adds, uh, well, subtracts from that mortality, adds fertility, and then adds uh, net migration. 
uh, empirical data sources are used to inform these assumptions. The most critical and key of these data sources is the census, the last of which was in 2011, but is still a relevant source today, and we are in the process of planning for census of 2021. We also make use of administrative records on births and, and deaths, which are collected by the Department of Home Affairs. Uh, we look at antiretroviral treatment data from the Department of, of Health, both for adults and for children, the prevention to mother-to-child treatment, uh, as well as looking at the threshold for where treatment is, uh, is implemented. And we break this down to district municipality level, and then we're using a ratio method to break this down further to local municipality level. We use a base population of 1985. So whenever I tell people that we use 1985 as a base, I'm often uh, encountered with a, a, a quizzical look, asking me why, why 1985? If, if, if you have a census of 2011, why not make the census your base? So the, the reason why we have uh, 1985 as a base is in order to see the impact of HIV and the impact of um, treatment related to HIV on the population and its structure in terms of the components of the cohort component method. The recommendation is that, is, is that you use your base population from a year that was prior to the commencement of the HIV epidemic in the country that you are concerned with. So that's why we use 1985. So just some uh, key findings which I'm going to take you through. South Africa's population at the middle of 2018 is that of 57.73 million. If we have a look at the age structure, which, which I was making a lot of reference to, 29.5% of the country's population is aged 0 to 14. 62% um, are in the youth and adult age 15 to 59, and then those over the age of 60 make up 8.5%. If we have a look here at the age structure um, of a province, like the Eastern Cape, to the, and compare it to the national age structure, you'll see that the bars that are in grey are for South Africa, the bars with the dark blue and light blue are for the Eastern Cape. We see that certain provinces have a very different age structure to the national average. You see that for the Eastern Cape, for the first three, even the first four rows, the bars are much wider, indicating, indicating a much younger population, and so the Eastern Cape has got certain needs that are related to their specific age structure. And then if we have a look at Gauteng, um, which also is, is the one with dark blue and light blue here, you, you'll see that the age structure is, is completely different. It's not a young population at all. You, you, can, you can see the gap that you see between the bar and the end of the gray are quite significant. But then for age of 25 to 39, you see that the bars are much longer, and that's the impact of, of international migration, which chooses Gauteng as a province of destination um, as, they, as, they, as they seek to find work there, but also of internal migration of people from other parts of the country moving into Gauteng in these specific years where, where we know that migration is more prevalent than others. Also by population group, we can, we can, we can have a, a look at, at this uh, age structure, which is, which is also very different. So we, we can see that the 
white population, which are the gray bars or the darker ones when we have a look at these ages here, compared to the black African one, which is the lighter blue, and then gray as it, as it goes to older ages, uh, shows that the, the white population shows characteristics more so of a, of a developed country with much older, much, much older well, more people graduating to older ages and having fewer, uh, a, a smaller proportion of people in, in their youth and the black African population showing exactly the opposite. If we look at the colored versus the Indian Asian population groups, we find almost the, the same similarity here. More colored people in, well, proportionally more colored people in the younger ages, and then Indians and Asians, particularly as a result of international migration for, for, a, for what a small group. Um, we see that impact here and as they graduate into older ages, that, that um, pattern will, will continue. Now here we can see a year-by-year -year progression of this population pyramid, and you'll see almost how trends are shifting up and new trends are, are moving in until such a point that that pyramid shape has become an anvil shape. So having a look at some provincial disaggregation, we'll see that more than half of the country's population resides in three provinces, Gauteng, KZN, and the Western Cape, with the Northern Cape being the smallest, well, spatially the largest province, but uh, in terms of population, the smallest population. Um, a very interesting graph is uh, this one here. This shows population growth rates from 2002 till 2018. So this mid-year population series started in 2002. But if we, we, we know that for the whole country, uh, this year, year-on-year -year growth is at 1.55%. But if we have a look at growth per ages, we see that zero to 14-year-olds have gone from negative 0.9 to 1.4% growth. The 15 to 24s have declined, and this is as a, as a result in a turnaround in fertility from 2.3 to 0.3 percent, the 25 to 59-year-olds from 1.5 to 2.2 percent, and the elderly from 1.2 to 3.2 percent. So having a look at the aggregated indicator like population growth is fine. It's, it gives you an overall view, an overall picture of what you see, but breaking it down into various age groups can tell you a much richer story about the demographics of the country and how it has been evolving over time. Um, total fertility rate, as I indicated, has, um, is at 2.4 women per, uh, 2.4 children per woman. Um, there was a peak of 2.68 around 2008 and that has now been declining uh, since then. If we have a look at this by province, we see that only the Western Cape and Gauteng are below that national average of 2.4. Free State is round about uh, par, and all the other provinces show a fertility rate that is higher than the national average. Um, in terms of mortality, we had a peak of mortality during the, the heart of the AIDS epidemic before, before ARTs were introduced in 2006, of 672,000 deaths uh, registered per year. And we see that now, by 2018, that has declined to 522. It has declined despite there being a growing population. So we almost have to juxtapose the, the two indicators in, 
in context of each other. Um, life expectancy has also been increasing since 2007, and it's, it's probably also related to the introduction of ARTs, where um, life expectancy overall has increased from 55 to, to what it is now at 64.2. Um, males have a slightly lower life expectancy at 61.1, and females at 67.3. If we have a look at uh, this life expectancy by province, we see that, once again, Western Cape and Gauteng, the only two provinces to have a life expectancy higher than that of the national average at, at 64 and 66 for males and 70 and 72 for females. But overall, we are on track to reach the goal in the NDP of reaching a life expectancy of 70 by the year 2030. So with 12 years to go, and we still need another six years, it is something which I think will be achieved. Uh, some mortality indicators here. Under five, mortality has declined from 80.1 down to 45 uh, since 2002 to the current year, whereas infant mortality from 53 down to 36. Then the hot topic of migration uh, this graph shows net migration excluding international migration. And we see here that uh, Gauteng, Western Cape, Northwest, and then it's, it's probably too small to appear on the graph, but in Pumalanga and the Northern Cape also have positive net migration, whereas the other provinces uh, show negative net migration on an internal basis. However, when we add the international migrants in, the international migrants can, can either uh, ameliorate the situation for the, for the provinces which are losing people or can exaggerate it for those that are gaining people. So you'll see that the, the light green is the additional international migrants that are added to those particular provinces, but in the, the ones with red, the white space next to the red um, compensates for the loss in, in population that we saw internally for provinces, most particularly like the Eastern Cape and Limpopo, and it compensates for them by replacing those people with international migrants. Finally, just uh, an indicator of um, migration into Gauteng. Where is, it, where is this all coming from? And we see that the thickness of the line ind indicates the size of the migration streams. Uh, and this is part of the, uh, this is, as I indicated, part of the media estimates, but this here is for the period between 2016 and 2021. It's not for one, it's not for a single year, it's for, it's for the, the period between 16 and 21, um, and these are the streams of people that choose Gauteng as a province of destination, and then we have a look at a similar one. We see this for the Western Cape as well. So, um, that's really my, my presentation. Um, I think that, that's, you know, if, if, there are, if there are issues of concern which uh, you'd like to elaborate on, I'm, I'll be more than happy to elaborate on. But I, th I think that in a, in whether, whether we are talking in a policy environment or whether we're talking in terms of uh, the private sector, one thing is, is abundantly clear, and that, and that is that we need to take cognizance of demographics and of changing demographics in, in order for us to make plans for our future in terms of making decisions 
um, on, on how we want that, that future to look. A future that is planned without taking cognizance of changing uh, the population is, is, a, is a, a future that is likely to fail. I thank you very much. Thanks very much, Diego. Okay, we're open to the floor for questions. We do have two roving mics, so if you can just stick your hand up and they'll bring one over to you. Should I kick us? Okay, we've got some over there. Thanks for the very interesting presentation. Um, just maybe uh, comment to a large extent, it is a bit sort of preaching to the choir, I would think. Uh, hopefully uh, the audience very much appreciates the um, importance of the studies that, that you guys are looking at. I guess the question is, uh, are you aware or can you elaborate maybe to what extent policymakers and government are actually incorporating these kinds of studies actively in their, in their planning and, and you know, the policies that they potentially are, are going to embark on? Let's take the second question and then uh, Diego can answer both of those. My question is on the interprovincial migration and just to understand how that trend has changed over time and do you expect it to change into the future? Okay. Thank you very much for those two questions. In, t in terms of the usage of statistics, uh, this morning I was actually at Parliament uh, sitting on the Portfolio Committee for the Police where we were speaking about the use of statistics and the use of population estimates as a denominator in the calculation of crime rates um, and, and to try and get an understanding of, of how the police uh, is making use of this. So I can answer your question in two ways. Number one, I, I would say that there are many government departments who are making use of this and I, I know this because they contact me and they ask me for what it is that they need and what they need it for and most specifically National Treasury is there, Department of Health, Education, the DPME, um, Presidency, which, which part of the Presidency is the DPME. Um, they all, all make use of this for a variety of the projects, whether it's reporting on, on the status of the country and how, how we have moved since 1994 up to the, the present. But are we using it, using it enough? And I would, I would uh, hesitate to give a resounding yes to that, because I, I think that there are other departments that are maybe struggling in terms of their performance. Um, and I think it's also important to say that when we talk about departments, we're not, we're not talking about like one, one national office. I mean, uh, municipalities have got uh, responsibilities, the provincial legislatures have got responsibilities as well. And the question is, you know, to what extent are um, lower levels of government being able to use this and have the capacity to interpret this information? Not just put it on a planning document, but to actually interpret it and Make, make it find resonance in the plans that they put together. And I think that the lower down um, the government hierarchy you go, so I'm referring here to local municipalities more so, uh, the less the capacity is to understand the data, to interpret the data, and to um, make it resonate into their, their, their plans. So 
I do understand that Minister Mkhize is um, addressing this association tomorrow um, and speaking specifically on, on municipalities. I'll be back in Pretoria tomorrow, but I think it will be a very interesting questions if one of you were to ask him that about the capacity of officials in municipalities to make use of and to interpret statistical information. You can, you can all tell me the answer later. Um, in terms of the internal migration trends, South Africa is an extremely mobile country, always, always has been, and migration has got this, um, this force that once, once it gets going, once it gets moving, it's not something that you will be able to stop by, by placing some kind of impediment or by changing regulations. If people want to move, they will move. Uh, there's no two ways about that. Um, and given South Africa's history and South Africa's past of a labor migrant system, particularly in the mining industry, etc., uh, and then in more recent years as, as other, other industries have, be, have begun to provide more employment to people, uh, people have begun to, to move from, uh, as, as you saw in the presentation, those, those provinces with high fertility rates, high levels of poverty. I didn't speak about anything on, on poverty, but there's clearly a high correlation between fertility and poverty and poor service delivery and all of that to the provinces where these opportunities are. So Gauteng and Limpopo have a very strong relationship. Eastern Cape, Western Cape have always had this uh, strong relationship or movement of people between each other. Um, in terms of KwaZulu-Natal, KwaZulu-Natal has kind of been a, a province that is, that is just in between. It attracts people, but it loses people as well. Um, and so I, I think that for the foreseeable future, these kind of trends were, will, will prevail. Um, I think the, the only thing that, that may ameliorate these kind of trends is the development of um, economic growth zones or uh, the opportunity of, of industri industries developing themselves in other parts of the country, which will attract people in those countries, uh, countries and provinces, sorry, um, but also to create incentives, especially for young people to stay in their, in their provinces. Having, having universities which, uh, which, which are, have strong relationships with the labor market so that once people graduate from universities, the first step isn't to move away, but the first step is to look around in your province as to where you might stay. Um, so I, I think many of the, of the trends around internal migration are in, entrenched to a certain degree but they are open and susceptible to be influenced by, by conditions on the ground. Uh, thank you, Diego. Um, just a quick question. Um, I don't know if you've come across any studies or we can elaborate on um, what you've seen in terms of how long it would take um, to get uh, a dividend from investment in education versus, for example, using that money to create jobs that are needed now for your current population. Would it, be, would it better suit South Africa to look at ways of creating employment for the job market that we actually have, which may be under 
uh, which may not have as much education, or would it be better to invest in having kids spend more time in school for a longer period? I think we have to have a nuanced approach to this. If, if I had a magic wand and I waved it and I made that our education system would be perfect from the moment we walk out of here, uh, it, will, it would take 20 years for us to reap the benefits of, of that um, and, and, and to see it in the workforce, to see its health benefits um, and to see how the, the policy environment reacts to an improved and a perfectly functional education system. But we don't have those 20 years and even in, in 20 years time this window of opportunity I spoke of will, will no longer be open. So it's almost like we, we have to try and address all of these issues at the same time in a nuanced way which uh, builds on slowly on a bit by bit basis make to ensure that, that uh, issues of health, issues of the labor force, of education, of governance and of economic policy all kind of improve equally over time. Um, the same would apply if, if we were to wave a magic wand and have 100% employment. If we have 100% employment but our education system is still lacking, if uh, HIV, if we still have a HIV population of around 7 million, um, uh, then what use is that 100% in, in, in employment rate? So uh, all, of the, all of these things do evidently take time, but I, I think that by having a nuanced approach where you try and counterbalance each of these issues against each other and try and improve all of them simultaneously, um, you would probably uh, end up in having a better outcome. But uh, I haven't seen any, any studies in that particular regard that, that show the, the, the impact of prioritizing one part of the dividend at the expense of others. One in the middle. Diego, in your population projections, you showed that uh, there will be an increase in the working population and the older ages and a decrease uh, in the young ages. Uh, what will be the, um, the percentage of the working population that will be actually employed and what big opportunities do you see for uh, private investors? Okay. Um the projection doesn't show a, a, de a declining youth population, but it shows a declining proportion of the youth's population. It's still increasing, but, but uh, it's not increasing as fast as others. So I, I just want to correct you on, on that, that part of the question. Um, the, the, the population estimate is exactly what the word uh, suggests. It's an estimation of the population. Um, it's, it's by no means estimating um, the employment status of such people. But uh, I think that if you look at a lot of data around you, socioeconomic data, uh, financial data, etc., you can, you, can, you can see how you foresee the 27% unemployment that we currently have. How do you foresee it to, to look into the future? But I, I'd rather not, not comment on that because, as I said, the, the population estimates um, deal really with the estimation of the population and not with, with any specific outcomes 
of, the, of that population. Any other questions? Yeah, we've got one over there. We can get a mic. Hi, Diego. Do you have a view on global peak population and what date we might reach it? There was a gentleman by the name of Hans Rosling who sadly passed away a few years ago. Uh, if ever you want to see a dynamic and enthusiastic presentation on population dynamics, look him up on YouTube. Um, he was the, the leader and the founder of a foundation in Sweden called the Gapminder Foundation. Um, he once, he once uh, suggested that the Earth's population will peak at around uh, 12 to 12 and a half uh, billion uh, persons. And that 12 and a half billion probably most likely to accrue close to the end of this particular century, towards 2100, where all of us here will no longer be around. Um, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a type of demographic um, exercise or question that uh, can be entertained by more academic um, demographers and actuaries as well. Um, although its value is something which uh, I'm, I'm, not too, I'm not too sure of, because as I, as I said, by the year 2100, none of us will be around anymore. And uh, furthermore, between now and then, there's so much that can change that we are not aware of, that we, we can't take into, into account, um, which may throw that, that calculation completely out the, out the window. So I, I, I kind of agree with this uh, global peak population of around 12 billion uh, around the year 2100. But uh, as I said, it's, it's something that is likely to change uh, as, as the conditions that we live in change. Uh, for, for example, we have no idea how the influence of the fourth industrial revolution and artificial intelligence is going to impact that. Um, what will future jobs be like? Uh, how will this impact the unskilled workforce that, that, that we see so much of in South Africa and in sub-Saharan Africa? So these are just some of the questions that uh, might influence that answer in one way or the other. Okay, I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, Diego, we have a gift for you from the Actual Society. Thank you. We know you're very busy, and thank you so much for, for coming to spend the afternoon with us. Thanks. Thank you, everyone.